ChatGPT has shot to prominence as a new type of AI-powered chatbot that seems almost human-like in its ability to understand and create text. It achieved 5 million users within days of launch and surpassed 100 million users just two months after its launch. Analysts at investment bank UBS noted, In 20 years following the internet space, we cannot recall a faster ramp in a consumer internet app. ChatGPT is itself an entirely new kind of media experience, but it's also the tip of the iceberg in a field known as generative AI. Machines that can create text, images, video, and sound. This technology will have huge implications for meaningful media and media experience. To show you their capabilities in audio medium, let's cut to an entirely AI-generated intro to the podcast. Welcome to the Meaningful Media Podcast, powered by Havis Media Group. I'm your host, Ben Downing, and in this show, we explore what makes media meaningful and why it matters. In each episode, we bring together experts and thought leaders from different fields and perspectives to discuss how media can create positive impact for people, brands, and society. In today's episode, we have a special theme, generative AI. Generative AI is a type of artificial intelligence technology that can produce various types of content, including text, imagery, audio, and synthetic data. To help us understand more about this fascinating topic, we have two very special guests who will share their insights on how data and creativity can work together to produce meaningful media experiences using generative AI. Please welcome Nate Rakiewicz, Chief Data Officer, Anumba Shakir, a beauty and fashion photographer based in London who uses colour and emotion to capture stunning images that celebrate diversity and beauty. Nate Anumba, what does meaningful media mean to you? Well... That's impressive. That intro was written by Bing with a simple prompt from me, and then I trained a model on my voice using Elven Labs. But I don't think I'm quite out of the job yet. So let me properly introduce now our brilliant guests, experts in the field, and I'm so glad that they could join us today. First, Amber Shakir, partner at Gate One, a management consultancy specialising in digital transformation. She's held senior positions at PwC, IBM Consulting, and is also a freelance digital artist photographer. Amber has been published in major international fashion magazines, including Elle, Asiana, and National Geographic. And introducing Nate V. Rakowitz. Nate is a data and analytics executive, currently serving as chief data officer for Reset Digital, a leading advertising technology firm. Nate joined Reset Digital from Gannett, USA and Today Network, where he served as the company's first chief data officer. He's held prior roles as head of analytics at leading video game publisher Take-Two Interactive and was SVP and content strategy department at HBO. Nate also holds an MBA from New York University's Stern School of Business. Amber, Nate, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Hello. So let's get into it. Um, That AI intro... It was pretty good, but it made some mistakes, right? It didn't do particularly well with the pronunciation of names, and it also got some things wrong. Can you kind of tell us what was going on there? Nate, how did it do that? Those machines are trained on vast amounts of data using various classification algorithms. And, uh, you know, the state of today's technology has really advanced with the explosion of big data that we saw in the 2010s. What I love about artificial intelligence is it's not new. 
This is not a new thing. This is not a new technology. These are not new algorithms. Many of these algorithms have been around for decades. And if you trace artificial intelligence back, you'll find references to it as early as the 1950s. And so these are things where we saw a peak of expectations for artificial intelligence, even with self-driving cars in the 1980s, 1990s. What they were missing, though, in those early stages of these algorithms was data. And it was really the explosion of big data that's allowed for these models that you've been experimenting with here and have illustrated for them to really take off. And so it's having this vast amount of data, this vast amount of sources that we can classify these algorithms around um, that's allowing for us to really start to see the promise that we've heard about for generations now starting to come to reality. And it's really exciting. And you mentioned ChatGPT before. And that's really put artificial intelligence in particular into the zeitgeist. It's really teased the imagination of consumers and of executives. And it's got everybody on the boards of directors and C-suites across different companies now asking their teams, what is our AI strategy? I guess I'm really interested in this idea that this is an evolution, right? Because when we think about media experience, we think about meaningful media, we've been encountering these machine learning, these AI systems for a long time, right? In terms of uh, it, it creates our Netflix uh, recommendations for us, but it also uh, is encountered in many of the, the ways that we consume content from social media through to other recommendations uh, we're seeing that we consume. And what you're doing there is is calling attention to the fact that this is a, an evolution of, of that machine learning, of, of that kind of AI we've seen already, right? And it, Amber, if I can sort of turn to you now, because we've talked about large language models and text. I kind of demonstrated that one there and, and audio. But that's that's not the only kind of generative AI. You actually work in a, in a more visual medium. Can you talk a little bit about that and explain that to us? Yeah, so building on what Nate said, um, the, the vast amount of data that is now available that you can train AI models on um, has, has changed the game. There's a lot of misconception out there about how these models actually work. Um, so people think that it's cutting and pasting um, or, or plagiarizing, um, you know, bits of, of content or from a from an imagery perspective, which is what I've been doubling in on, on mid-journey and stable diffusion, for example, people think that it's collaging from other artworks and, and stitching the seams. Um, and so that's not how it works. Um, it's not a derivative piece of, of uh, sort of work that's being synthesized. It's an AI model that is using data sets to learn how to synthesize something that it's told from a frame of reference. So it's a little bit like, um, I've, I've used the analogy of, of teaching a child what an apple is. So I will show a child multiple apples, green apples, red apples, um, you know, Granny Smiths and, and you know, all of that, um, and say, this is an apple. When I ask that child to then draw me an apple, they're not collaging or taking old apples and stitching them together. They are from their memory of what they have been trained to learn as an apple, synthesizing their expression of an apple. And that's what these models are actually doing. It's a little bit like um, somebody said the other day on uh, social media, 
these models are stealing everyone's work. <laughs> and um, and I said, well, actually, it's not stealing anything because it's not it's not using it other than learning. It's a bit like saying that if I walked around the Uffizi Gallery in, in Florence and I study colour and I study form and I study composition, am I stealing or am I learning? And this is where, you know, th- those misconceptions come about. The data set on which you train that model becomes vital to the accuracy or quality of the outputs. While you say that, you know, it, it did a fantastic job and it can it can seem very intelligent, it's just maths at the end of the day. It's just very, very, very fast computing, massive data sets and much more sophisticated algorithms. I'm a real enthusiast about it and I and I use it for, for creating imagery. I'm a photographer myself. I think that's really helpful, grounding us in the reality of these tools, but also calling our attention to the fact that this is new content. It's not just copying and pasting. It is something new. Yeah. It's derivative in the sense that it's learning. But as you point out, that's how artists have learned. Nate, can we turn back to you? And this is a tough question, but I I know you're the right person to do it. Can you give us a kind of layperson's explanation of like what's going on? How are these models being built? Well, I love that Amber talked about math and probability uh, because that is ultimately what is at the base of all of this. But the reality is the way that artificial intelligence works is it takes a word that we have today uh, or a word that we're about to display and it's looking at all of the words that preceded it in that sentence and it's using that coupled with all of the words that it's been trained against and predicting a certain set of futures, probability, and it's coming up with that next word. So there's vast amounts of processing power, compute power that has to happen for every word that's being displayed in uh, in what you generated there with ChatGPT to look backwards a certain number of words and then to look forwards a certain number of words and, and apply a probability to that. However, what I will say is that how is that any different than the human mind? I would argue that the human mind is also math and probability. Well, there I'll you let go. that hang there for a second. Well, there you go. Uh, who'd have thought in this podcast we'd be talking about theory of mind? I want to come back to the point Amber was making around the things that these machines learn on, the biases in the kind of traditional machine learning sense where um, something is overrepresented in the training set and therefore the model that is built uh, encounters that overrepresentation and suffers from it, to the way more significantly systemic bias is reflected in training data used for these models and then the outputs of them. And to do that, I'm going to uh, play a very quick clip um, from Tim Gebu, uh, who is a brilliant machine uh, learning scientist, data engineer, uh, and also is formerly head of ethics at Google um, and is doing some brilliant thinking in this space. There is an assumption by many people who build these types of models that just because the Internet has lots and lots of texts or lots and lots of data, that somehow when you train something based on that internet, it will encode so many different points of views and so so much, so many diverse views, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. And what we argue is that size doesn't guarantee diversity. There are so many different ways in which people on the internet are bullied off of the internet. And now let's ask which people are bullied off of the internet. We know women get harassed online all the time. We know people in underrepresented groups get harassed and bullied online, right? So the text that you're using from the internet to train these models is going to be encoding 
the people who remain online who are not bullied off, all of the sexist and racist things that are on the internet, all of the hegemonic views that are on the internet, that's what you're going to be encoding, right? So we were not surprised to see uh, racist and sexist and homophobic and ableist, etc. outputs. There are many ways in which uh, uh, different organizations and research groups are, are building toxicity systems, toxicity detectors. They now have a lot of people that they pay to try and figure out which content is extremely toxic or horrible so that they can actually train another system that can tell you which um, is toxic and not. So that's a really important grounding in some of the implications here. And Amber, I want to turn to you now to expand on some of the issues you started talking about and how that might impact media experience specifically when we're using these tools to build content. It's a really interesting one because I think we all carry biases and it's cultural and culture matters in in a lot of this. Um, And so when you think about where is the data being generated from, it will be places where we have internet access and technology infrastructure etc so when you think about you know we we talk about globalization um i'm not sure that our data sets are very global i think they're very western um you know centric one thing that the, the ai did get right about me was that in my photography i tried to look at western um you know fashion compositions but with ethnic models so i purposefully will use south asian black East Asian models in very Western Harper's Bazaar Vogue style um, editorial um, images. Um, And that's on purpose because I I am from a South Asian extraction myself. And growing up in the UK, I didn't see myself represented in media, right? Mm. So so I think whether it's AI generated or human generated, there's a bias about what is a mainstream idea of beauty or a mainstream idea of progression. I think all that we've got is a bit of a mirror up to the culture from where a lot of this data set is coming from. Does that mean we have to live with that and just deal with it? No, I think there's things that can be done around building better and more ethical data sets the data matters. Yeah, so the, the importance is kind of correcting for that bias. And and if you look at ChatGPT, ironically, one of the criticisms has been that uh, it was overtuned and overcorrected. Um, mm. I don't I don't think that's the case. I think it's quite quite a safe system to to use and is becoming safer. But the need mm. to 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 correct for those systemic biases that exist in in training data and. You started to talk about other risks there, including um, what's sometimes called in the technical language hallucination, right? Mm. AI's capacity to uh, to make stuff up and copyright. Kind of interesting that the, the US Copyright Office uh, has issued a judgment that AI-created art cannot be copyrighted. Uh, so that's, you know, that's that's kind of an interesting immediate evolution. But there's going to be so much that's going to happen with with case law, with this being challenged. So the, the legal framework for this has some catching up to do. Nate, kind of turn to you here and, and ask, is this a difference in the way the models are built, right? Because these models that are building images are learning from artists who do need to be uh, recognized, whereas a lot of the large language models have been, you know, trained on corpuses of data that's under fair usage. Less from the legal sense, but is that 
partly due to like a difference in the way these models are, are trained? Well, I love the uh, points that Amber was making there, and uh, the 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 examples that she she honed in on um, are are really compelling and real. Um, the biases that are existing in the data sets, and how many times have we said the word data so far in this podcast uh, relative to the word artificial intelligence? Um, I want to touch on uh, something that Amber said though about uh, taking the output of that though, and you know applying the human mind to it afterwards. And what's next that we believe is starting to become more real starting to become more human, starting to become more emotional. This is the world that we're sitting in over at Reset Digital. We're analyzing creative, we're analyzing content, we're analyzing advertisements to try and elicit the emotion that is present within those things. And I think what we're going to see in the next iteration of artificial intelligence is just as we've started to see AI start to replicate a lot of what artists can do. Similarly, we're going to see artificial intelligence start to learn on what emotion looks like and how emotion can be injected into these generative AI models in a true way that feels like a real human, just like ChatGPT is almost feeling like a real human that is on the other side of that chatbot. Now we're starting to pass what's been known as the Turing test for decades, where the computer is being mistaken for a true human being. And the mistake factor, I mean, humans make mistakes. Yeah. And so they have this element of temperature that you can um, you can inject into these models that allow for it to make a certain margin of error, plus or minus. And what they're finding is that the results that are coming back are really creepily human, and they can't explain why. I want to kind of ground us uh, back now in the practical applications. So what does this mean for, for media experience, for marketing? Nate, I think this idea of a kind of human, real human, uh, you know, human sounding or human feeling uh, boss that you're talking to is, is a really interesting new kind of media experience. But let's look at what this means now for uh, for marketing transformation. So Umber, I'm going to turn to you first, but before we do that, I'm going to play mm -hmm. a uh, quick clip. And this is from the uh, the recent announcements, announcement of Bain, the management consultancy, uh, who have inked a deal with OpenAI uh, to work on, on transformation with the Coca-Cola company. So you're going to hear the CEO of Coke and the CFO uh, give their thoughts on generative AI. So Coca-Cola was the first company to engage in this alliance with OpenAI. What excites you about this technology? Ultimately, think about the long history of Coca-Cola through all evolutions of communication, TV, radio, outdoor, all the way to coupons over 100 years ago. We've always tried to stay on the front edge of what's new and engaging with the consumers. And OpenAI is a unique opportunity uh, to participate and experiment with that next generation of technology is going to be incredibly important and incredibly disruptive in communication, in knowledge work, and many other things. Have you started to think about use cases where this might be deployed? There's so much to potentially go after. We have a couple of really interesting cases uh, with the marketing team to enhance the work that we're already doing with our new marketing model and to be able to marry the ability to deliver creative content at speed and uh, and to do it with exponential efficiency. So really fascinating that the CEO of Coke, this incredible brand, is mm -hmm. drawing this direct continuum, right, from TV, uh, you know, sort of uh, radio, press, right back to coupons 100 years ago to saying this is a new kind of, new kind of media experience. This is going to be a critical way of building our brand. And the CFO there kind of coming in 
uh, with a bit more sort of concrete saying, well, well actually, we're, we're trying, we're, you know, starting to experiment using this to create marketing content. So Amber, can you play this out for us? What is, what is the next few years, the next kind of two to five to 10 years look like for generative AI in, in marketing? Big question, but go for it. Big question. Um, I, I think it is a continuum of, of, of things that have been happening. Um, I've been implementing AI, uh, whether that's marketing cloud, collaborative filtering tools, um, you know, marketing automation, um, sales automation, that convergence between sales, marketing and experience teams, including data and insight, um, data driven experience and experience design is not new either and so i think this is the next step in that in that evolution of how we engage in an omni-channel way with consumers um, and i think as as we as we sort of move if you think about you know the 1980s being more sort of materialistic um you know the early 2000s we went into more service um economy I, I think we're moving into an experience economy now and, and people want to have those, those meaningful experiences. Um, whether that's an employee and, and an employer, whether that's a consumer and, and the, the product, um, provider and the business, um, whether that's human to human in, in terms of social connections. I think that's really what we're seeing when we think about marketing and media. What does content actually drive for us in a marketing setting? And usually you have three goals that you're trying to achieve. You either want to grab attention, make somebody aware or entertain them, or you want them to transact on something. So you want them to click on something, you want them to buy something, you want to take up an offer, or you want to help somebody do their job or the the a task more easily. So I kind of think of, of content being driven in those terms. Um, content generation, um, there's absolutely um, some opportunity around further marketing automation using some of these tools, right, to speed up the generation and, and the transactional parts of, of content generation. However, the storytelling, the tone of voice, and that fundamental idea that grabs you and holds you is really difficult to mimic in, in AI right now. So that true, true creativity and humanity, I don't know how long it's going to take for the models to catch up. And I think this is where it is. How do we take AI and apply it to the transactional parts of content development and free us up? Um, as humans, to do more of the creative stuff, because yeah. I think a lot of time gets taken with marketeers on on transactional admin stuff. The importance of human in the loop and uh, AI human hybrid work, where AI can help us uh, free us from some of the drudgery. Uh, in interesting stuff, uh, Nate. You've held some really interesting roles, right? You've been at HBO, you've been at Take Two, a games company, uh, and you've also been at, at Gannett, a major newspaper publisher. So. Although you're a data person, although you're a data science person, business transformation person, you've worked in content businesses, right? Mm -hmm. Now at Reset, you're kind of focusing on building a new kind of media experience. Can you, can you play it out for us? Given your experience, knowing what these technologies can do, can you play out some, uh, some opportunities? For each of those categories, how are you going to go find all of that data? Mm -hmm. How are you going to then use that to start training it 
classifying it so that it can first detect it. And now that we can detect it, we can generate it. I want to ask you both for some real quick tips for folks listening to this who are getting started from either an individual contributor basis or they're thinking about AI in their in their job role, role their company. Um, what should they do? How, how can they get started and get to know these tools? Amber, come to you first. There are interfaces that are that are public domains very low barriers to entry <laughs> let's say around getting a chat gpt account or uh, getting um, an account on discord so that you can get onto mid journey and and play around on on that too so so i think there's something about just actually experiment go in and have a look get a feel for yourself don't don't just be led by social media or or media sensationalism around what these things can and can't do i would really say just stop playing and have a look and see um i think there's a really good quote out there um where somebody said ai won't replace humans people using ai will replace people not using ai nate what's your take on this so I like to tell people to uh, spark their imagination. Uh, spark your imagination is something um, that you do by getting your hands on it, just like Amber was saying. And so where are areas that are becoming more accessible to people to experiment and spark their imagination uh, with artificial intelligence? Um, you know, among them, we've talked about chat GPT. That is the, uh, you know, the elephant in the room right now, but it's real. Go play with it. Have it as your helper on, you know, a daily basis. Have sign, it up, sign up for Bing. Yeah. Have it proofread your emails. Um, you know, what you can do right now is put the copy of an email that you're about to send into chat GPT and have, have it say, you could tell it to rewrite this in the style of a New York Times journalist. You might be surprised. These are simple ways that you can start to explore what artificial intelligence can do for you on a daily basis. Um, if you're concerned about your privacy or the privacy of your family members, there's sites out of the uh, out there that have artificial intelligence built in where you can upload a picture of your photo and it will just based on your photo go out and find all other photos of you on the internet, right? These are AI things that are available that you can go experiment with today. Spark your imagination with them. You'll start to come up with ideas of your own and create new ideas yourself. I love those thoughts, guys. And the thing about generative AI is it's really good because the output uh, can, the kind of tasks it's applied to, the the danger of failure or the point of failure is relatively low, right? It's kind of, uh, it's not like crashing a car. So it's interesting that we've applied artificial intelligence to these tasks where sort of good is good enough and mm. catastrophic failure doesn't have such the same risk things like uh, self-driving hasn't quite been cracked in the same way because the failure state is you know much more critical um, i've also heard that uh you know the world would be better if uh, the self-driving cars were only driving with other self-driving cars and that maybe we should <laughs> explore distinct lanes just for them yeah. Isn't isn't that a train? Um, <laughs> that's a, that, that's a, that's another podcast. Um, <laughs> all right. So, listen. Thank you so much for your insight and brilliance today. I feel like uh, that was incredible. I've learned so much. We finish every episode with the meaningful media uh, fast five. Nate, what is your meaningful media right now? What matters to you most right now? The Mike O'Mara show. It's a chance to get away from it all during the day. Just talk about nonsense, humor, 
Uh, it's a podcast that's uh, on every platform. Love it. We will check it out. What is the media that you start your day with? I like watching CNBC. Uh, Want to know what their markets, the markets are going to do today, uh, where things are going, what uh, business leaders are talking about, and uh, what we're looking at for the remainder of the day. It really sets the tone. What media do you turn to when you're looking to get inspired? I'll go with podcasts. Um, there's a lot of self-help uh, podcasts that are out there. Uh, I do like Joel Osteen. Of, of I, I'm cracking up laughing at that. Uh, he's a, a, a prosperity preacher, uh, but Joel Osteen has got he's got some really good messages uh, that are out there, and I've found myself turning to listening to his podcast recently. Love that. Love that. So, what's your media guilty pleasure? Oh, I said it at the start. It's the same. The, the Mike O'Mara show. I listen to it almost every day. It's a, a show about nonsense, humor, and just guys busting each other's uh, things I'm not going to say on this podcast. <laughs> so um, it's funny because very rarely do people um, admit that their media guilty pleasure is also their meaningful media. Uh, so you're, you're I've only got so much time. I've got three young kids. I'm working all day. I've got, uh, you know, I'm in an entrepreneurial company. How much media can I consume? But I, but I love that, right? Because quite often the thing that is our sort of escape is our kind of guilty pleasure is most meaningful to us. Um, so you can have one media platform for the rest of your life. Which one is it and why? I've always had the audio bug, so it's got it's got to be podcasting. Uh, I, I used to do podcasting, and before that, we called it internet radio. And uh, I got my start in actual radio that went over the airwaves with one of those giant like radio antennas back in the good old days of college radio. And so uh, I've got to go with podcasting. Um, analog uh, analog podcasting. Um, so it, it's funny because because <laughs> we actually have quite a few people who talk about still having linear radio as being really important to them. It's um, free. Yeah, it's free. Where else are you going to get free media? Yeah, well, you know, and also it's kind of been with you. And I loved your your sort of talking about your your media experience, pointing out that, and we find this again and again and again, lots of folk have very limited uh, limited media time, right? So reaching them can be really challenging and doing it with their most meaningful media, doubly so. So I appreciate you kind of grounding us there. That was a, that was a fascinating um, couple of answers. So Amber, you're going you're gonna to bring us home. Are you ready? Okay, let's do this. All right, what is your meaningful media right now? My meaningful media right now is actually late night shows. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, but um, the variety, uh, whether that's uh, Seth Meyers or Stephen Colbert or Jimmy Kimmel, like, you know, the pop culture, um, news updates, um, a little bit of uh, sort of editorialising in their monologues, um, it, it, it kind of it kind of really um, it hits into the zeitgeist of, uh, of, of culture. And how are you consuming those? It, presumably not linear TV because you're not in the US. Is it on catch-up or are you seeing the clips? Are you looking them on Twitter? Uh, YouTube. Okay, YouTube, of course. Yeah. Okay, so what's the media you start your day with? Um, a bit of YouTube <laughs> um, with some of the late night um, uh, guests, but um, also we we love to put on BBC Breakfast. There's just something really comforting about Carol doing the weather and and you know um, local stories as well as uh, UK politics. So we have BBC Breakfast on. So do you pay for YouTube or do you take the ads? Uh, I take the ads at the moment. Interesting. Okay. Mm. So what media do you turn to when you're looking to get inspired? 
Um, I actually turn to apps, um, so trending apps like uh, Future Trends and um, Pinterest. So a lot of my uh, things that I turn to for inspiration tend to be around my creative side rather than my work side. Um, and so, you know, photo photo um, ideas, travel ideas, um, most Instagrammable places, etc. to inspire me where to go when I am traveling. Um, I yeah, Pinterest, Pinterest and future trends is the is something that's Pinterest. Good. Yeah. We get we get Pinterest quite a bit, you know. So yeah. what's your media guilty pleasure? Uh, it, it's definitely, definitely a mix of YouTube and Netflix. So I will go into um, YouTube rabbit holes and you just leave it and it goes to the next video and the next video and the next video. And, so, and uh, um, another way that we encounter uh, AI in our media experience, right? In our media yeah, community. totally, totally. Um, and mine always leads me down the tech gadget. The other part of my guilty pleasure is makeup and um, yeah, skincare. Lovely. Okay, so you can have one media platform for the rest of your life. Which is it and why? Oh, it's YouTube and it's variety. Just endless entertainment on there. Love it. Well, thank you both Nate and Amber for coming on the show. Uh, and I'll, uh, I'll hand over back to actually AI Ben to, uh, to finish us up. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Please leave us a review. It helps people find us. Why not mention you'd like to hear more of AI Ben? Maybe as a permanent co-host? Yeah, I'm not quite sure we're ready for that yet, buddy. But um, please do like and subscribe. Leave us a review. It helps people find us, five stars preferably. Uh, you can do that on the show, uh, the show pages on both Apple and Spotify. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Meaningful Media Podcast. Join us next time.